Welcome to episode four of the second season of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. I'm Gary Naylor. Our guests this week are Peter Hayter, columnist at the Cricket Paper and ghostwriter for, amongst others, Ian Botham and Marcus Trescothic. Hello, Peter. Hello, Gary. Emma John, author of the 90s Cricket Book, Following On, a memoir of teenage obsession and terrible cricket. Hello, Emma. Hi. And Rob Smythe, freelance cricket writer. Hello, Rob. Hello, Gary. Before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Employment Law Specialists, Anderton Law, and also pay a big thanks to our listeners, some of whom have taken the opportunity to tweet us at CrickShow80s90s, and amongst others, we'll say thanks to Steve Burr, David Reville, and Jeff Grimshaw. Thanks for your contributions over there on the Twitter phone. Our player of the pod this week is Devon Malcolm. And speaking of guys being history, in the second innings, we'll look back on the 1999 World Cup. So hide behind your sofas now, South Africa fans. So we'll start by looking at Devon Malcolm. He played 40 test matches, during which he took 128 wickets, an average of 37. But perhaps more than most cricketers, the figures do not tell the tale. Peter, what is the tale of Devon Malcolm? Wow. Well, the tale of Devon Malcolm is that he he bowled some of the fastest balls anyone has ever seen. He could be absolutely devastating, uh, but he could be also absolutely terrible. And not uh, just in consecutive overs, but, you know, ball after ball. Steve Waugh said, uh, facing Devon, you'd face the fastest bowl, uh, fastest over you've ever faced, and then you'd face the worst. Uh, one after the other. I don't think that's quite accurate. But on his day, there was no greater sight and there was no greater thrill watching cricket than seeing Devon charging up to bowl, an explosion of arms and legs at the crease, and this like almost like a javelin throw with the ball coming out at the end, a bit like Jeff Thompson in his pomp, and then a blur. And frankly, anything can happen once the ball was released. I, I think I saw the fastest bowl I've ever seen at Adelaide in 95, when he ran up and bowled at Steve Waugh. And Steve Waugh, we were all getting sick of the sight of Steve Waugh by then, frankly, and certainly England bowlers were. But he, Devon charged in and bowled this ball. I, 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 I can tell you now, no one saw it. Steve Waugh didn't see it. And we were watching side on in those days from the press box. And the sight, the only thing we saw was this stump come cartwheeling out the ground. Uh, and Steve was still in the process of completing his forward defensive shot to this ball. Uh, and the stump whistled past Ian Healy's ears. It was an incredible sight. And it was just wonderful, Devon. He had such natural enthusiasm for running and bowling fast. Sometimes it was tempered because he knew how quick he was and how lethal he could be if he hit people. So there was always, you know, the, the time when he took, uh, we'll go on to it probably, but his greatest day in cricket, 9 for 57 against South Africa at the Oval, was one of them, just one of those displays which, which makes cricket worthwhile for everyone. But in the first innings, he'd already hit Jonty Rhodes on the side of the head and, and Jonty had to spend the night in hospital. Came back, he was fine. But that really upset Devon. And in the, in the second innings, he, you know, he was preparing, I think, so the remainder of that first innings, he was a little bit tentative. He, wasn't, he just wasn't comfortable with what he'd done. And then when he batted, 
He got hit on the head by Fanny de Villiers, a ball that removed Devon's badge off his helmet. And that shook him up. And in those days, of course, there was a sort of un- unwritten rule. You didn't bowl fast at the, the, other, at the other side's fast bowlers. He got one first ball. And he shook himself down, looked around, and he said, OK, guys, you think you know what fast bowling is all about? I think I'm going to show you. And he uttered, apparently, the famous words, you guys are history, and how he made that come true. In the second innings, he was unstoppable. It was one of the great days. What I recall watching Devon Malcolm at the at the Oval is they talk about players who empty the bars, but Devon had a slightly different effect uh, on the crowd. But it was it was definitely noticeable because as it became clear he was going to take the next over, there was this kind of quietness, this kind of silence fall over the crowd as newspapers were put down and people stopped their conversations uh, in the prospect of of something happening we weren't quite sure what was going to happen but we knew we had to look up and see the man who was carrying the ball in for for England I mean he must have been a a a delight for journalists Rob because there's always a story yeah I know I was just thinking the idea of me being a journalist in the 1990s when I was (laughs) talking about yeah no I guess so um I mean yeah as Peter said at his best he was absolutely devastating I think one of the most interesting things about England in the 90s is as bad as they frequently were most of their victories were through exhilarating, aggressive, almost Pakistan-style cricket. And Devon was central to a lot of those at the Oval 94, Jamaica 1990, Adelaide, which Peter's mentioned. The, the strange thing is, though, you say he was a dream for journalists, and I guess he was, but I don't remember him being, you know, he wasn't someone like Botham who was always on the back page or anything like that. Obviously, when he ran through a team, he would be the centre of attention but I don't remember it being a huge story apart from that except for the time when he had a very public falling out with Ray Illingworth in South Africa and subsequently when they both released their books I think it's worth mentioning the over though at that point it was um the fastest pitch in the world apart from Perth Harry early 90s Harry Brim produced this glorious wicket and that that's why it suited Devon he would often end up in a weird position of starting a series and finishing a series but being dropped in between he'd often play the first test on a slow seamer England would lose or panic and drop him then of course come to the oval they either needed to square the series or they were starting again and they'd bring it back and it bowled brilliantly go through the winter generally do pretty well and then the cycle would kind of repeat um, that it felt like that's how his career was, certainly for the first half of the nineties. Yeah, well, we 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 will look at how uh, Malcolm Devon, as he was uh, <laughs> once called, was handled by the England hierarchy. But I want to come to Emma because we've already mentioned the title of your book, "Teenage Obsession and Terrible Cricket," and one can surmise that uh, Devon Malcolm uh, played a big part both in fostering the obsession and in some of the terrible cricket that you refer to. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I mean, Rob saying, oh, England didn't make a kind of superstar of him is is really, I think is really interesting because he was a, a name that was often on the lips and he was a mega character and somebody who everyone knew about, but... He, I think it was as a figure of fun more often than as something devastating. And yeah, I find it really hard actually to look back on this and think about this because um, because in some ways, you know, you, you say, oh, well, we always have our figures of fun in, in cricket. And with Devon, you know, you could say, well, this is often justified because he was a terrible batsman, for example. He was like the worst kind of 
tail ender bunny you know just didn't didn't look comfortable didn't look like he knew how to handle his bat you know I, I I don't know what his stats are Rob will know but I mean I feel like in my head he was constantly you know getting yorked for a dog <laughs> but um and then he and then he wore those thick glasses didn't he so he 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 was quite short-sighted and so the lenses on his glasses were quite thick you know whereas with other people we might have said oh gosh doesn't it make him look intelligent you know and like a real kind of brain box I think you know with Devon we sort of added to the kind of slight haplessness of the batting and the waywardness of the bowling because as well as being very fast he was also famously inconsistent and inaccurate and there were times when you know the ball just wouldn't hit the cut strip and so it might be going down the other end very fast but it was also kind of really you know it was troubling second slip rather than troubling the batsman and I feel like that was that was what that was what we all knew I would say like you know Rob and I were both teenagers at the time whatever you know like that was what that was the Devon Malcolm that we thought we knew right um and I think it's really I find it really sort of yeah a bit depressing to kind of look back and think gosh yes with different handling didn't we have a didn't we have a superstar in the making but we didn't really kind of appreciate it maybe as much as we could have done at the time and then if you look at the fact that he was still bowling 90 miles or nearly 90 miles an hour at um the age of 40 and you look at his longevity as a county bowler but not just longevity the fact that he was still bowling really fast that his body actually didn't break down I mean we had so many of those bowlers you know his I mean Malcolm's best kind of pairing in the bowling was Angus Fraser and we know what we did to Angus Fraser and how we completely like you know wrecked him as a physical specimen but Malcolm you know he had a he had a body that held up to it all and yeah so I find it I find it quite painful honestly to look back and think why um why was why didn't we um you know just appreciate and and turn this you know raw gem into something that could have defined our bowling um for for a generation really Emma, Emma, I'm sharing your pain here. I was only 12 at the time as well, by the way, if you were worried. <laughs> but but uh, you, you make a good point. There was a sort of cult figure atmosphere with Devon, a bit like Monty Panassar for the same reasons. Uh, couldn't feel pretty bad with the bat. I mean, he was, uh, he, was, uh, he was renowned in county cricket as a sort of comedy figure before he... Before, <laughs> and they didn't tell it to his face. But Angus Fraser told me once when he was playing against... Derbyshire for Middlesex and Devon chased a ball to the boundary, tried to effect one of those sort of forward roll stops, pulled the ball back, but his glasses flew off <laughs> and he couldn't find them. So he was he was very, very short sighted and he was scrambling around on his hands and knees, trying to find his glasses before he threw the ball back. And apparently the, the batsman ran five while he was uh, try, trying to find them. <laughs> he, the, I mean, there was a comedy element to him because he was a very funny guy. He, he, was, uh, he was great company, very softly spoken, amusing in a very soft, quiet way. He was incredibly... Uh, he, I think he did a business management course uh, of his own bat as well. Um, so he was, you know, he, was, he, was, he wasn't what you saw as a bowler in real life. He was an, actually a, a top bloke uh, with a good sense of humour and very gentle. Uh, and he quite liked the the feeling of uh, people having a giggle at him, especially when he then 
uprooted their poles. But of course, his first success on the field for England came about as a result of him misfielding a ball when um, England were playing West Indies at Jamaica. And Greenwich and Haynes had put on the usual 50 for the first wicket and it looked like the series was going to go the way they all had gone for the previous 10 years. Devon tried to field the ball at fine leg. It hit him on the shins. Gordon Greenwich saw the ball hitting him on the shins and called Desmond Haynes back for a second. Whereupon Devon unleashed this arrow straight exoset throw straight into the hands of Jack Russell. He ran out Gordon Greenwich by, by a mile and that precipitated uh, West Indies collapse and England winning that first test in Jamaica, in which, incidentally, he got Richards, Viv Richards out in both innings, LBW in the first and Bold in the second. So there were two straight balls to start with. And, of course, at the same time, we were going through the uh, Ted Dexter time of our lives when he was chairman of selectors and failed to identify various players at certain times. And he said after Devon's debut against uh, Australia at Trembridge, when, unfortunately, he took one for 166, as Australia got 602 for six declared. He said at the end, when asked were there any positives from the summer, he said, of course, who can forget Malcolm Devon? And, and so there was a feeling at the time, I mean, English cricket was, was, a, was a comedy show, Emma, as I'm sure you remember, yeah. uh, tinged with terrible tragedy uh, and, and, and farce. And Devon was part of all that. <laughs> Having said all that, when he got things right, he, he, was, he wasn't a laughing matter at all for the batsman. And he could have been used better. I mean, I think his handling on that tour of South Africa by Railingworth and the bowling coach Peter Lever was absolutely scandalous. And, it, and it, uh, it took the wind out of England's pace attack at a stroke. This was the guy who had destroyed South Africa at the Oval the last time they'd met, taking nine for 57, who at the match in Soweto, attended by Nelson Mandela, the great man went up to Devon and said, I know you, you're the destroyer. So Devon's confidence was so high at that point. You know, he, you felt he would win England that series in South Africa. And before long, uh, Illingworth and Lever had contrived to just make him feel like he couldn't bowl. I mean, they were trying to change his action. So his arm came over straighter. Well, with Devon, you, you get what you, you know, he takes nine for 57 with a terrible action. I'll settle for nine for 57 with a terrible action. Thank you very much. And the, the England players couldn't believe it. I think Illingworth said something like the management are all together on this issue of trying to get Devon to run up and bowl straighter. Well, Illingworth said to me, I hope they don't include me in the, Atherton rather said to me, I hope they don't include me in, in that term of the management because I, I think they're crazy. Uh, Graham Thorpe said, this is madness. You know, they tried to make him bowl straighter by running up straighter. He hit the side of the net doing that. So leave him alone and just let him bowl. It was, that was crazy. Oh, absolutely crazy. A crime against cricket, frankly. I mean, Rob, we've got a history, haven't we, of, of crying out for fast bowlers. But when they do arrive, they tend to get treated like a kind of hired help. Is that, is that fair? Is that what happened to Devon Malcolm? I think that there has always been an element in English cricket with fast, truly fast bowlers and also leg spin of the kind of toys that we don't know how to use. I think there was an element of that with Devon Malcolm. I, th- I think he really suffered, a lot of people did, but he really suffered from the lack of an all-rounder because England generally played four bowlers in most of his career. And sometimes they felt they couldn't trust him, particularly in England, you know, because he did, while I agree he was mismanaged, like pretty much every decent England cricketer in the 90s and would have benefited <laughs> massively from central contracts. You know, there's, there's also some days when he did just bowl like a drain. So I think there were times they weren't sure about that. 
But if you break down his career, so he played his first test, one for one six six, was injured, missed the next game, then played 17 in a row under Graham Gooch. After that, his last 22 tests came in th- over six years in 13 spells, which is extraordinary. A couple of times he was injured. He got chicken pox at the start of the Ashes Tour, which was a huge blow because it was straight after the 9.57. But to have 22 tests in 13 distinct periods, I mean, quite a, and fast bowling depends so much on rhythm and confidence. And it's just totally. constantly being it's constantly being eroded. Having said that, I still do also think there was just an element of kind of chaos, and no one knew. You know, even that oval game when he took nine fifty seven against South Africa, as Peter said in the first innings, he didn't bowl particularly well. He had a row with Mike Atherton, who wanted him to bounce the tail enders. He didn't, partly because he said he was unsettled by John T. Rhodes. Even within the nine for fifty seven, you get a sense of his career. The first spell is five overs, three wickets for four. Second spell, six overs, one for thirty six. Last spell, 5.2 over to 5 for 17. So even within that, you get the kind of highs and lows. I, I do think he was mismanaged. I do think we didn't necessarily know exactly how to use him. I, I've spoken a lot with friends about this, as we're all nerds, about kind of what could have been different in the 90s. And I do keep coming back to that all-round point. If England could have had five bowlers, they could have played him pretty much all the time. Um, to play him in four was was a problem, partly because of his off days and partly because of workload, you know. If you look at his career, he's often bowling 40-plus 40 overs in an innings, which is outrageous, just crazy. Add county workload on top of that. As Emma said, his body was actually pretty resistant to it all, but it must wear people down. There was a season, I forget which one, but Derbyshire had a rotor system. It might have been 93. Um, and he, by the time he was recalled by England, he actually felt, for the oval test, of course, he felt really fresh and bowled brilliantly. So, yeah, I think he was mishandled like everyone. Cent- I mean, central contracts, it's a recurring theme in this podcast for a reason. It would have made such a difference in so many ways. I mean, Emma, did you feel, as I felt, that we were kind of cheated of, of Devon Malcolm as, as fans? That we, you know, if not first name on the team sheet, if you want to win a match, you pick your fastest bowler, don't you? Um, yeah, I guess so. And it's funny, isn't it? Like, I feel like. Um... Also, I always felt like some of those great, really great fast spells that he bowled, nine for 57 aside, that some of the greatest moments happened abroad. I think 94, yeah. Savina Park and then Adelaide. But also even even on that tour, even, even the games that England lost, Malcolm was still bowling uh, spells that the Australian batsmen still speak of with awe, even though he didn't actually, even though England lost a match and he'd end up with two for a hundred or something. You well, know. A, can I just quit? There's one game at Perth, 95. He broke, he broke Michael Slater's thumb. He had a million catches dropped and he ended up with match figures of two for 198. So you would look at that and think he bowled abysmally, when in fact it was quite the opposite. Yeah, Sorry. and I feel like we, you know, fans especially, you know, for whom that was happening in on the other side of the world, in the middle of our night, at a time when not all of us, you know, had access to the Sky Sports highlights, um, for example, meant that I felt like I saw a lot more of the wayward Malcolm um, mm. than I did, you know, the dev- the destroyer Malcolm. You know, that's why nine for fifty seven stands out so much for me. I mean, I, there, there aren't many, there aren't many. Um, periods of cricket that I can remember exactly like where I was sitting and what I was doing and 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 that is one because I know that I was at home in my parents house watching it and that every time my mum who was a massive massive cricket fan every time she walked out of the room he took another wicket (laughs) and so as a result she stayed out of the room because that was her like dedication to the court right so she didn't see any of the nine for fifty-seven. She just sat in the kitchen most of the time. So yeah, 
That, that for his first tour to the West Indies, I've got to tell you, uh, Viv Richards, as we know, famous, he never wore a helmet in his uh, test career, but he had one in his coffin during that series. <laughs> How do I know that? Because I was doing Collins with him for the Mail on Sunday. And he very nearly wore it. He, Devon was brilliant at Jamaica, brilliant at, at, uh, in Trinidad, a match England would have won had it not been for the weather. And then Viv decided the only thing he could do was to take him on. So he took him on in Barbados and scored a very quick 70. But how many of those runs were balls just going over the boundary rope on that short square boundary at, uh, in Bridgetown? And Alan Lamb, unfortunately, he was skippering decided to take Devon out of the firing line when he could have got Viv out any moment. And, and Viv, he was never scared of anything, Viv, but he would have taken the sensible option had he felt the pitch uh, in the last test in Antigua had warranted that he was ready to wear a helmet. That's what Devon Malcolm was like. I think in the 90s, England didn't have many players who the best in the world feared and was really respected. Yeah, Malcolm, they definitely did. As you said, Viv, Steve Waugh talks about him a lot. The whole Australian batting lineup, really. Who, I mean, 1993, they were scoring thousands of runs, 632 for four, I think, at Lord's, 653 for four at Headingley. Then he, Devon came back for the Oval and he took six wickets in the game and Angus Fraser took eight. The figures don't look spectacular, but... He just gave them the hurry up in a way that no one had. I think that's actually the spell he regards as his fastest. 14 balls yeah. on a Sunday evening to Michael Slater, who was like a cat on a hot tin roof at the best of times. But in this spell, it's worth... You can find a bit on YouTube. I think there are about five balls of it at the end of the highlights. And it is, it's quite something. It's well worth looking he at. Got, he got good batsmen out. That was yeah, the key. Exactly. The and top actually, order batsmen. He got out. He got Mark meant. Taylor out seven times. Uh, David Boone, five. Mark War five. Steve War five. Yeah, he got the best out. Do you, think he was was too nice to, do you think he was too nice to bully the tail? I think he was a little bit worried that he might hit him and hurt yeah. him, for sure. Yeah, because mm. it did upset him when he hit Jonty. Didn't yeah. like it. You know, he, he wanted to be up in their faces and get the ball whistling past their ears, but not hit him. Well, I, I want to keep that thought of whistling past the ears because we usually turn to a Derek Pringle to say what was it like actually in the middle. But this time <laughs> we we can turn to Peter Hayter and <laughs> yes. say what was it like, if not quite in the middle, in the nets. In the nets. Well, for the balls when I had my eyes open, it was terrifying. <laughs> um, I was persuaded to go into the nets to face Devon for a magazine article, which seemed like a very good idea at the time. Uh, and... <laughs> And the night before we were due to do this, by the way, I was going to face him in the nets at the Wacker, which has been pointed <laughs> out, of course, is the fastest, bounciest, most terrifying uh, cricket uh, surface in the world. Uh, so I decided to prepare mentally, physically and emotionally by getting hammered the night before on <laughs> several, several bottles of Petaluma Riesling with one or two of the England players who knew this was going to happen. They were looking forward so much to me being hurt. Anyway... <laughs> So I turned up at the ground the next morning. I, I was sort of staggering around, uh, asking various players if I could borrow their kit. Tuffers opened his coffin. He had everything in. He had twice every, every piece of protective equipment, of course, being a physical coward. So I took everything he had. Chest, I looked like the Michelin man. And then I actually needed a helmet. And, and for some reason, Tuffers's didn't seem right. And I asked Devon if I could borrow his. And it was enormous. It was about three times the size of a normal head. So I put it on. And I staggered across from the dressing rooms to the nets. Uh, and, of course, everyone was watching. They thought there was going to be blood on the, <laughs> blood on the wicket. <laughs> I stood there and I, you know, I, I could sort of play quite okay. Obviously, I'd never faced anyone of the pace of Devon Malcolm. But uh, the, the, the idea was simple. I stand there. He bowls a ball straight. We have a snapper side on. 
to take a photograph of me looking terrified with a ball cane past my nose. What could be simpler? What could possibly go wrong? Well, Devon had one of those days when he couldn't, he was, he didn't know where the ball was going to ter- end up. So he kept bowling the ball straight at my head, which meant <laughs> I was I was putting out every ball to get, literally to try and not to die. Uh, and we couldn't get the shot because it just looked too mad. I was, I was just—it looked like I was just flinging myself to the floor every ball. Anyway, so in the end, we gave up on that idea. I stood still where I was. Somebody lobbed the ball gently past my nose from about three yards away, and we claimed this was the photograph of the ball whistling past my nose. However, I knew I was alive facing Devon <laughs> Malcolm. I tell you that. Uh, I'm not saying my life flashed before me, but I, it was electrifying. Watching him run up to bowl, trying to spot the ball as it came out of his hand and stand still and and play it. Wow, what a feeling, what an experience that was. And I did, I hit a few. The ball, rather, the ball hit the bat a few times uh, and I, I got away with it. And Devon, to this day, since that time, whenever he sees me, he, he shakes me by the hand and said... You're the bravest fool I've ever met. <laughs> that, that reminds me of a line from David Gower. I think he was interviewed with Andy Bull, who asked him what's his favourite hangover cure, and he said facing the West Indies fast bowlers. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I did quick. Devin a bit of a disservice, actually, because I think when I was saying about, um, you know, he was still bowling nearly 90 at 40, well, I've just double-checked, and he was actually, he says he was still getting over 90 most deliveries when he was... Mm-hmm. When he yeah. was at the end of his career, and that he'd been, and that he'd 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 been clocked on the speed gun at ninety-seven miles an hour against the West mm. Indies at Headingley. He was born about one hundred and five at me. I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just about the only bowler I've seen, kind of with the naked eye, who I thought was as as quick as Devon Malcolm. I, I remember seeing Imran Khan in nineteen eighty-two bowling very fast at Lords. With Garth Larue at the other end, it can't have been much fun facing Sussex then. But um, no. I, I saw at a time when he was out of favour, I, I saw in the nets prior to a, a one day, I saw Mitchell Johnson bowling in the nets. <laughs> he was absolute <laughs> lightning, and I remember mm. thinking, "God, he's the fastest I've seen here at the Oval since uh, since Devon Malcolm." So he was a a genuine quick. And as as we're summing up here, as we'll finish our look at uh, Devon Malcolm, I will kind of put him into a, a bit of context here about the the man who was in and out of the side, who was attempted to be managed by a system that, that couldn't manage players before the central contracts. Because if I look at England's fast bowlers in history of test cricket, I reckon he's seventh on the list. The only... Fast bowlers who've taken more test wickets for England, I would suggest, are Bob Willis, Fred Truman, Darren Goff, Steve Harmison, John Snow and Graham Dilley. Now, you know, people might argue for, for others, they might put Flintoff in there or something, but when you think of, of how he was treated, of the fast bowlers when they come along, and they're rare specimens indeed, uh, only six of them there have taken more test wickets than, than Malcolm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we we think of him as an unfulfilled talent, and we think of him as a player we could have got more from as as England fans. But really, that's not bad, is it? And he has, of course, the best figures ever at the Oval. And I, I mean, it was it's for him, to, for me rather. Devon wasn't about the figures; it was about that indefinable thing that happens when you see something extraordinary on a cricket field, either a brilliant batsman playing a sublime innings or somebody bowling speed of light 
There's nothing like it. And Devon provided so many of those great memories. I'll settle for that. Yeah, I will too. Any, any will you guys, uh, Emma and Rob, will you settle for that too? <laughs> thought you were going to say we're history <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah of all my favorite ever england win is actually that 94 oval game not just because of devon but because of the kind of brutality of the cricket with the bat as well it was just so extraordinary but he is obviously central to that it's probably the most exhilarating spell i've ever seen from an england bowler with the possible exception of um uh joffrey archer to steve smith but devon's was different because he actually destroyed a team a good team who had drawn home and away with australia the previous winter i mean he he reached levels that he he could reach the kind of levels below other England bowlers, but ultimately his top level he was as deadly as anyone we had in that period. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's kind of testament really to him that he is spoken of now with a huge amount of respect. I think that more so than potentially he was at the time he was playing. And I think yeah, I think people do do realise you know how how significant he was in an era when when there was a lot of dross. Frankly, let's yeah, be honest. There was. and we move in our second innings to have a look at the 1999 world cup it feels like a million years ago in lots of ways especially when you look at at photographs and some of the other stuff around that time but it's it's only a generation in the past but uh, one day cricket was a very different game back then as was its marketing as was its uh whole approach now peter um what was the approach to the 1999 world cup i was going to ask you gary actually 22 years on i still have absolutely no idea it was a a shambles frankly um it started with uh, the icc wanting to get eight headline sponsors for the tournament they managed to get four uh, and then uh they put out some i think ecb managed to recruit outspan oranges to um, be one of their own sponsors and they they wheeled on Annika Rice to front this at which point she was asked what she thought of cricket and she said it's as boring as fishing (laughs) so so well done everyone then we had the the World Cup song now I like Eurythmics and Dave Stewart and Annie Lennox I think they're fantastic but Dave Stewart produced this song called All Over the World should have been called All Over the Shop um it was quite a catchy little tune, but it didn't actually mention cricket at all or anything to do with the World Cup. It was accompanied by a video which seemed to have been based on the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where the patients at a mental institution actually managed to escape for the day and have a lot of fun. Anyway, in this version of it, they escaped and had a game of cricket. So that was the selling point for the, um, for the marketing. Uh, and then, of course, we had the worst opening ceremony in the history of sport, at Lords uh, with Tony Blair, and I can't even remember which member of the royal family it was, but it wasn't one of the big guns. Uh, and they set off a, some fireworks in on a on a rainy, windy, wet day, which basically turned into into fog, uh, which enveloped the ground uh, as the opening ceremony was going on. Uh, frankly, you couldn't make it up. And then, of course, England were terrible. So we didn't have to suffer it long as England fans and supporters. England were knocked out before the World Cup song was actually released. Uh, And on the first day of its release, somebody contacted the two major record stores in the West End and they'd sold no copies at all. At which point, after England had been knocked out, uh, the motif for the the World Cup being the carnival of cricket, Tim Lamb, famous as the uh, TCCB uh, chief executive those days, famously stood up and said, the carnival goes on. Well, uh, 
not in my book, it didn't, nor in the, in, the, in the eyes of any of the other England supporters. It turned out, actually, to be a very eventful and quite fun tournament with some very good cricket played. It was played in the wrong time if you, for a World Cup. It was played in May, so the ball was jagging about all over the place. But uh, what will I remember from it? I remember the World Cup opening ceremony, which uh, I still wake up having nightmares about that to this day. Uh, I, I'll remember the World Cup song, which I still have no idea what it was about. Uh, and I'll remember Annika Rice telling us how much she loved cricket. Um, the World Cup video, uh, song video, um, is an extraordinary uh, piece of work. And I, I've tried to rationalise it uh, since since seeing it. And the, the only thing I can think of is that somebody has said, oh, they all wear whites. Don't they all wear whites <laughs> in one flew over the cuckoo's nest? And somebody says, That's yeah, it. let's do that. And then off yeah. they do, off they go staging the uh, the breakout on the... Instead of Jack Nicholson, we've got uh, Dave Stewart. It's, uh, it was I was there. I was there watching it, and, and it, it was amazing. We, there was a, a packed house at Lords to watch this launch, and they played this video. And Dave Stewart was there, bless him. He obviously had no idea what was going on, or, and or he didn't know anything about cricket. He said, "I wanted to produce a song that didn't have things in like I hit the ball, I catch the ball." I said, "Well, okay, fair enough." Uh, but you might have had some reference to the game of cricket. That might have helped. Uh, and then we watched this video, and I'm telling you at the end of it, there was total silence in the room. Uh, there were about 50 journalists just looking at this. <laughs> they couldn't believe what they'd seen. Uh, which, and the silence was punctuated by a number of uh, record company executives in the back of the room going, woo, 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 yo, and stuff like that. <laughs> which, you know, it's so uh, funny because I I feel like even then, even 20 years ago, I feel like that video was poor taste. I mean, I know course, that we've yeah. learned a lot more about mental health and um, stuff since then, but I feel like even then you you knew that there was something a bit off about that portrayal. <laughs> It was fantastically bad, honestly. I can't. I can't tell you. We will put a link to it in the uh, oh, in do. our in our Twitter feed. But take a deep breath and make sure there's there's no under twelves in the room when you, when you watch it because it really is that bad. One of the stated aims of bringing the World Cup to England was to kind of reinvigorate cricket as yeah. a, a part of young people's lives. So Emma and Rob, you were both relatively young. Did you get that? that feeling at all in the in the run-up to it do you know it's really funny because I literally remember thinking this was going to be the moment that my friends were going to see that cricket was cool like huh. I'd, I'd I'd been following it for six years at this point and you know I've been an absolute pariah for that very reason and I totally bought into the the pre-tournament hype. You know, I'd been told, right, this is English cricket <laughs> making itself cool and like proving itself, um, you know, in a world that is obsessed with Beckham and uh, football and all the rest of it. And I think even I knew, yeah, at the, at when the opening <laughs> ceremony happened that this, you know, the dream had died on the first yeah. day really, Tragic. and that none of my friends were going to watch this. And that, you know, um, I, that, do you know, the funny thing about the coolness factor is I just remember how much store cricket used to set by, you know, pyjama cricket, like by the, just the very fact that the cricketers weren't playing white. This supposedly made our game cool and relevant and young. And, mm. and it's just absolute nonsense because you know that in in those days certainly but i would argue still today 
um, there is nothing trendy and never has been um, about the one day outfits that that cricketers wear. You just can't make them cool. I'm really sorry, but you can't. And those ones in 99, I mean, I'm not saying they were a particularly egregious um, uh, example, but if you... Oh, come on, Emma. What about what about 1992 New Zealand? Come oh, on. Oh, I know. No, there, you, there, are, there is the occasional outlier. All right, there's the there occasional go. outlier. Um, you know, there's the, you know, there's sometimes there's an ironic beige in there that, you know, <laughs> will always live in, in our hearts. But those ones was a time that late 90s, everyone was wearing baggy stuff. And if, if you look at the size like the billowiness of the shirts that yeah. they were wearing it's really <laughs> peculiar it's yeah. like it's some kind of homage to like um new york the new york hip-hop street scene and um <laughs> i know that we'll talk about lance klusner later but seriously go back and look at lance klusner looks like he's wearing a duvet cover <laughs> there's yeah. a, you know like a green duvet cover there's no other way to explain why is there so much material flapping around this man in toga-like fashion and why do so, why do they all have to wear green? Why do so many teams have to wear green? I don't understand it. Is that uh, have they just run out of paint for the other colours? <laughs> I, I think billowiness is such a perfect descriptor of the kits at the time. That's uh, super stuff, Emma. Uh, Rob, you've always been a man with your finger on the pulse beat of cool. <laughs> did you? Did you? <laughs> did, you uh, did you feel the coolness leaking out to Kent, where you were? I take it at the time. Not in the slightest. I think. <laughs> I think by then I was kind of I I was already stuck in an abusive relationship with English cricket. Whatever it did to me, I was always going to just be in love with it. So nothing really took me by surprise. But looking at the footage now, I think at the time we didn't know any better. It, it's only twenty two years, but it looks so quaint and so yeah. naive. Every aspect of it, and that in one way that's kind of quite funny. But it also reflects the problems England had because it was the last summer before central contracts. Again, go back to that. But some of their preparation was just things that you can't imagine now, you know. They went to Sharjah to play a series a month for a World Cup in England in May. I mean, what's that about? Uh, they couldn't even get the facilities they wanted. They wanted to be based in Leicester, but those facilities were given to India and England was sent to Kent. There was, And it's just, it just seems so long ago now. It seems like, At the time, it was all we knew, I guess. And we'd, we'd had, well, I'd had by then 12 years of watching England struggle. But but looking back, it's extraordinary how amateurish it was, I guess. They were also having a pay dispute before the yes. start of the tournament when they were in charge. That was a story we were mostly covering out there, which was They almost uh, went on strike, didn't they? Yeah, well, no, they wouldn't have done, of course. But mm. um, they, they, you know, there were, there were threats made, veiled threats uh, to various channels. But you just felt this team doesn't know. You know, it's not together. Bumble, David Lloyd had said he was going to be retiring at the end of the tournament, come what may. So they, they looked a bit readerless, leaderless and rudderless. And um, they played that way too. It was just really, really disappointing because English cricket needed a shot in the arm, didn't it? We, we, we'd been losing to Australia for a thousand years and um, the, the game was on its knees in terms of attracting new younger audiences as they say so this was a chance and they blew it it's easy to forget their record their audio record generally in that era was abysmal but the record at home in the 1990s is really good so Mm. it's easy to look back and think they never had a chance but i I think there was a kind of cautious optimism i had a look and they were fourth favorites just behind pakistan and australia but you're right it it just it, it started they had a good okay. chance because it was English conditions. In yeah, May. exactly. So it should have been. And, and made they didn't have bad. I mean, they had Darren Goff, they had Andrew Flintoff, they had Adam Hollyoke. They had some yeah. pretty good Alan, one day players. They were just caught cold, weren't they, in their India game? So it looked like the last game they lost to India, they, everyone thought they were through to the Super Sixes. And I've got a great yeah. um, advert from The Guardian the day of the. Uh, 
India game with the Super Six stage being as difficult to understand as blah blah blah. We, we, it's unclear who England will be playing in the next stage. However, yeah. we know they have qualified, yeah. and with Cricket yeah. Unlimited as Grumpy Jack, you could be there at all their three crucial games. And That's then true. suddenly, everyone thought they were playing for Super Six points because there was that system where teams who went yeah. through only took the points against teams who also went through. So, but then Zimbabwe beat South Africa, which nobody saw coming, and sure. all of a sudden England were just yeah in all kinds of trouble yeah and i mean you could look at certain things there was as i'm sure you remember there was a diabolical decision against graham thorpe which didn't help yeah Um, but ultimately they they kind of weren't good enough and it's interesting also we've just been through a t20 world cup when probably the most used phrase is net run rate in those days nobody looked at the small print at all nobody had a clue really apart from steve war who tried to manipulate it but england actually in their game against zimbabwe they were pottering to victory and i think the last 12 runs they scored in 7.1 overs yeah. And that's an almighty double swing in the net run rate because they eventually went out on net run rate to Zimbabwe and India. Yeah. Just different times, I guess. Well, and, 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 and grinding out that result against Zimbabwe, of course, Nasser Hussein, who opened the batting, was 57 not out at the end of the game. They only had to chase up <laughs> to 60. Yeah. I'm better than Nasser. <laughs> Peter, I'll come to you first with this one. Was it a case more of England's poor preparation events and so on or were England just unlucky obviously there's a there's a bit of both involved but where does the the pendulum swing in that well they unlucky they weren't smart I mean they could they should have won that game against Zimbabwe much more easily than they did and and as as has been said to up their net, net run rate when they played South Africa they were terrible they lost by 122 runs which is not bad in a, in a 50 over match and against India I think they realized that they were going out as the game went on. They just, you know, they let India get 232, which seems like nothing these days, but that was a decent score. And there was a bad decision against Graham Thorpe. Graham Hick got a duck. No one got going, really. Uh, they just looked, they looked like a beaten side playing that match to me. They looked like they knew they were going out and they knew what that meant. And they were sort of crushed by the enormity of that. Um, Do you know, that's, you know they, 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 they were the... That's one thing I've never been able to work out. That team, there's quite a lot of tough characters in that team. You know, Stuart, Hussain, yeah. Goff, etc. But they were so meek in this tournament. They beat yeah. Sri Lanka, who were awful. They beat Kenya. They beat Zimbabwe. But they were, as you said, slaughtered by South Africa and lost heavily mm-hmm. to India in a game where they won a really good toss as well and bowled first with the ball doing plenty. I, maybe that all ties in with the, the sense of them being a collection of county players. I don't think they lost their heart. I think I think they were getting some bad publicity about the, the pay yeah. dispute. The, the, the opening ceremony was a disaster. Uh, the song was appalling. English cricket looked a joke, and they and that rubbed off on them. I just think they, whatever confidence and heart they had as a team, quickly um, slipped away when they were at the centre of something so shambolic. I mean, India had just come off the back of a, a match I remember because um, my uh, eldest son was uh, two years old. He just turned two. And I remember um, trying to get him interested in uh, Ganguly and uh, Dravid's monster partnership uh, for India against Sri Lanka. Um, I can tell you it didn't work for a two-year-old. But uh-huh. that's, it, that's another it story. But, it but, did work but for India... an eight-year-old. The, on, the only good thing to come out of this tournament for England was that Josh Butler was in the crowd that day and was inspired <laughs> ah. to uh, take a cricket yeah, yeah. at Taunton. Yeah. So that's the, the one silver lining from the 99 World Cup. But I, I just wonder because India were were not the powerhouse they are now, and in you know May in in England you you weren't really expecting the the Indian batsmen to come to the fore. But Ganguly and Dravid had shown, albeit against Sri Lanka, that they could bat with the best of them. And 
And I just wonder whether they carried sort of uh, three days later, carried that kind of confidence into the England game because that, that's the result that stands out. India at that time beating England by 63 runs in English conditions when England needed to win is is pretty poor stuff, really. I think England were there for the taking. I don't forget also there was uncertainty over how things were going to happen, uh, turn out after uh, David Lloyd retired. And, of course, the rest of the summer wasn't much better. They lost to New Zealand in a test series, didn't they? They were then ranked worst team in the world. Um, <laughs> so it, it wasn't a great time to be an England supporter. It started badly and uh, never looked like getting any better. It was um, For England, it was about the most forgettable uh, international tournament I think I've ever seen them play in. Uh, and they played like it. They just weren't there somehow. They just didn't turn up. Yeah. Well, they they went out on the aforementioned net run rate, the progressing teams from Group A, and we'll go a little more into the convoluted structure in a moment, but the progressing teams were South Africa, India and Zimbabwe, and and South Africa were very much the the class of the field early on. I mean, they did have a, a hell of a side, and in Lance Klusner, they had this kind of Superman billowy shirt or not. Who seemed to be able to bowl lightningly quick and then come in at number eight or nine and bat like a number four? I mean, Rob, uh, Lance Klusner in this tournament was was unstoppable until the uh, the denouement, which uh, we'll leave for later. Yeah, it's very rare when you get a player of the tournament who isn't from the winning team, and nobody disputes it. But I think that's the case with this. Uh, he played some extraordinary innings down the order, just brutal death hitting. The kind of thing that's normal now, you know, yeah. the kind of thing Jimmy Neesham did to England, but people weren't doing it then in 50, in any, well, 20 over cricket didn't exist, never mind 50 over. Um, and he took, I think, 17 wickets. Um, it's interesting because the tournament, because it was in England, it was actually much more old fashioned. 96 had been more about pinch hitting. This was a lot more about death hitting. And as Peter said, 230 was often a good total, but Klusner was, was able to take South Africa to formidable totals just with a, like, he'd only need like 20 balls to get 40 odd. I remember a chase against Pakistan, he did it to England, he did it in the semi final, even though they lost ultimately. Yeah, I don't think we'd ever seen anything quite like it at that stage. I think that's, that, that's what I was thinking just re watching some of the innings. I, I, looking at Klusner bat, it's really noticeable how um, when he's connecting with the ball and, you know, the, the power with which he's hitting and, and, and the the way he's getting the ball to the boundary off balls that, you know, absolutely he should not have been able to. The mm. commentators are going nuts, you know. Like there's, yeah. I think there's one in the semi-final where they say, what kind of shot is that? And it's really <laughs> funny, like, you know, having just watched um, some 2020 World Cup games, you're like, well, it's the kind of shot that everybody hits now. You know, it's like that ability to just the kind of uh, the fact that there was no orthodoxy I guess it was like it was total power you know it was hit this ball as hard as you can and it will still get to the boundary somehow Uh, and we yeah we absolutely we didn't see that did we because even in the previous uh, World Cup when it had been about pinch hitting it was about hitting over the top Mm -hmm. um but that thing of like just you know you you've got arms that would not shame he man and um, <laughs> and 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 a very very heavy bat i think it wasn't his bat peculiarly heavy for the time and again now we're really used to those kind of things but he had this like axe of a thing um, yeah. uh, that, you know, probably, I, I bet, you know, nobody used to go to the gym in those days. Probably half of the other batsmen wouldn't have been able to lift it, like Thor's <laughs> hammer. He was a very strong guy. And, of course, in those days, heavy bats were actually heavy. 
Nowadays, you get heavy bats which are light. That's not uh, contradiction <laughs> in terms because they take all the moisture out of them and they, the ball smashes off them. But he, he took a railway sleeper out with him and he, he absolutely <laughs> launched it. It was fantastic to watch. I mean, he was seen as a kind of freak. Um, it was, he was kind of inexplicable. But, I mean, as you say, Emma, we look, we look now and he was doing the kind of things that batsmen worked out that they could practice in the nets and then apply in matches where he would he'd sometimes go deep in the crease but he'd he'd hit from a very strong base and he'd hit through the line and he would hit it very very hard very very often um and i i don't recall him being seen as a kind of template for batting in the in the upcoming century but you you look back and and there was 21st century white ball batting being delivered in 1999 by Lance Klusner and actually very few others. And from deep in the order, I mean, he was yeah. going in nine, wasn't he, most of the time? I mean, you thought the way he was playing, they'd stick him up. But Bob Wilbur was coach of uh, South Africa. He obviously had some kind of theory. He obviously worked specifically with Klusner on that. So fair play to him. He, he, he'd uh, developed a weapon. wasn't the only thing Bob developed in that tournament, of course. He sent uh, Hansi Cronje out to play in their match at Hove with an earpiece through which he was sending uh, instructions as to field placings and so forth uh, ahead of its time. But unfortunately, the ICC didn't see the funny side of that and got him to take it out of the first drink straight. But uh, that was indicative of the way South Africa approached cricket and the way Bob Warmer was. He was an innovator. He obviously had his uh, theories about how the game should be played, which, which were unique to him. And uh, someone like Klusner would have fitted that pattern. I've got this thing. I'm going to develop him as he is, uh, and he'll be he'll be a part, a part of that jigsaw of my team. They're just thrilling to watch. A huge bloke, by the way. He was massive, arms and shoulders. Extraordinary, as uh, Emma says, he man. Yeah. Well, um, like me, you can have he? too many you can <laughs> have too many theories in your head as uh, South Africa were to find out in the the very last ball of their uh, contribution to this uh, World Cup. But but yet, what seems like interesting and sort of commonplace innovation was very much kind of frowned upon. But it did bring other issues to the the table at that time in South African cricket, which we won't exactly go into at the moment. But mm. um, but yes, the communication between coach and captain, uh, now done with numbers held up on the boundary, which uh, seems a very 20th century way of, of communicating yeah. in the 21st century. But um, we're going to turn now to the, the other group, and we're going to look particularly at the other finalists who are Pakistan. And before we do that with you, Rob, I just, I'm going to attempt to explain the structure, huh. um, but it'll come to the fore as we track Pakistan's progress. There were 12 teams involved, and they were split into two groups, Group A that we've talked about and Group B. And the teams that finished in the top three of each of those groups will go into the splendidly alliterative Super Sixes. Now, you would think in the Super Sixes that they'd all play each other, but um, that would make the tournament too long. So what happened was you would carry over the points from your group matches into the Super Sixes. But here's the thing. Only points won against the other qualifying teams so what you needed to do in the group games was to beat your fellow qualifiers of whom of course you didn't know uh when you were playing them because those points not only would count in the group to get you qualified but they would also count in the super sixes as well and this was to hamstring uh australia 
as they make their progress, but they manage to get round it. But um, that's how it was. Groups A and B. Gary, could, could you could you repeat all that? Because I yes, we 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 all did, and I haven't even mentioned net run rate yet. But uh, yes, to get to the super Absolutely. sixes, <laughs> to get to the super sixes, you had to finish in the top three of your groups, and you carried points accumulated in your group matches against your fellow qualifiers to the super sixes. And if you're thinking that's poorly explained, uh, it probably <laughs> is, but it's also absolutely inexplicable until you see it in action. I so, think, uh, go on, Rob. I was going to say, it's worth explaining the rationale for it, which was that yeah. in 96, they'd taken a whole group stage of point forever to essentially knock nine teams down to eight, because at the time there were nine decent teams in world cricket. So Correct. that's why they did it. The ideal would be to go straight to the semi-finals, like you did in the T20, but obviously there were TV issues and so on. So that's why they needed more jeopardy in the first round, which in that sense, it was a huge success because Australia were fighting for their lives pretty much from the start. Uh, England, as we saw. But I, so, but you're right, the system was not ideal. It was, was arguably unfair and open to manipulation, which we saw with Australia. In their last game, they were going to beat West Indies and qualify, but then Steve Ward deliberately slowed down in the hope that West Indies would go through ahead of New Zealand on net run rate, thus giving Australia two points because they'd lost to New Zealand and would beat West Indies. In the end, that didn't happen, but it shows that it was open to manipulation. Um, but I, right. I do get the logic of the system and why they did it because the 96 World Cup was just basically started at the quarterfinals and by then you'd already had about 40 games. Mm. So but I forgot to ask Annika Rice what she thought about it as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's, let's look at Pakistan and their route through to the uh, finals. So they start off against uh, West Indies uh, with a win. Rob, do you want to just track us through? Yeah, they, they started brilliantly. It's very unlike... Generally, when Pakistan do well in the tournament, they start as shambolically as possible and then it just kind of crescendo through it till they're irresistible in the final. Um, certainly that happened in the 92 World Cup and in the, uh, when they won the T20. But with this, they started brilliantly four. I think they won the first four games. They had such an exciting team. I mean, on paper, it's a better team than the one that won the World Cup in 92. Um, mm-hmm. The batting was led by Saeed Anwar, who wasn't a pinch hitter. He was just a classical attacking opener. Uh, who scored a load of runs at Inzamam, and then good solid players like uh, Ijaz Ahmed, Yusuf Yahan, as he was known then. The bowling attack is incredible. You've got left arm pace with Wazim, right arm outrageous pace with Shoaib Akhtar, mystery off spin in Saklane, leg spin with Shahid Afridi, and even the two medium paces, Azam Mahmood and Abdul Razak, were essentially attacking bowlers. Uh, mm. So they played some brilliant cricket. They beat Australia in a really good and slightly ill-tempered game by about 10 runs and then came the problem they qualified for the super sixes with the last game to spare which was against Bangladesh who in those days weren't a test play nation already gone out Bangladesh was 33 to 1 to win and they won and the game's been the subject of you know there were loads of red flags I think there were 29 wide and no balls three run outs a load of poor shots when the Kayyem report was commissioned in 2000, the president of Pakistan wouldn't allow him to investigate this game. Lord knows why. Nothing has ever been kind of proven. There have always been allegations, but they were cleared subsequently, the team. But anyway, they lost a bit of momentum through that. They went into the Super Sixes knowing they only needed one win to reach the semis. So they lost to India, lost to South Africa, and then thrashed Zimbabwe. So it was kind of up and down because they lost momentum a bit, but then they got regained it again by the time they'd gone to the semis. And I think this tournament possibly uniquely among World Cups, with the possible exception of 2019, there were three teams who would have been outstanding winners, I think. Australia, South Africa and Pakistan. Pakistan were that good. Um, it was a really brilliant team. And they just... Um, I don't think the structure actually helped them necessarily. 
And in a weird way, the, the tournament is remembered most for two defeats, one against Bangladesh and one in the final, which is a shame because they played some incredible cricket. I mean, some of the bowling, as I said, Shirab Akhtar's Yorkers in particular, um, and then Mike Selvey regards one ball to Stephen Fleming in the semi-final as the fastest ball he's ever seen, which is quite funny given, obviously, Peter was mentioning earlier about Devin Malcolm as well. Mm. But yeah, it's a shame that I think sometimes the sheer brilliance of their cricket is occasionally forgotten, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah, I mean, there were brilliant cricketers throughout the tournament, really. I mean, I, I wonder if some of that is coloured by this being one of the, the last tournaments in which really there were a lot of test players playing in white ball cricket before we got that kind of specialism starting to come in. So maybe we import some of our our feelings about their, their test careers into their one-day one careers. But you, you kind of look down the, the squad list, and as you say, there's, there's three outstanding teams who would be um, excellent winners, but there's some, some good players dotted about in the in the others, I, not least think, in England, as Emma said. I think it's telling that the two top scorers in the tournament were Raul Draven and Steve Waugh. It was often a like watching a kind of slightly faster version of test cricket. It had that same kind of flow. I mean, a, a perfect example of that, I think, is in the semi-final. I know we're going to come to it, but at one point when they were rebuilding, Michael Bevan and Steve Waugh, I think they scored six runs in 8.4 overs in a 50-over game, which, A, is incredibly nerveless but also shows that it was just that and then they kind of they cashed in later on and and so on but there was a kind of more natural ebb and flow of the, and actually in that sense I think one thing that isn't spoken about with England I think they really miss Mike Atherton who has believe it or not an outstanding ODI record in England I think he averaged nearly 50 won a lot of games for example that India game it's a kind of game where he might easily have got them like an 84 not out to win it I think he, he had to pull out because of back trouble but I think it was a, a, a tournament in which the kind of values of Test cricket were often quite useful. It's interesting because the, the um, I think David Lloyd was instrumental in, in trying to bring out the one-day specialists or put one-day specialists in the side, like Adam Holyoak, like mm. uh, Mark Elam, for instance, and Alan Mullally. He probably wouldn't have been anywhere near the Test side. But that final, the quality of the players on show, uh, Sayed Anwar, have you said, um, Abdul Razak, Inzamamal Hack, Moen Khan, Shahid Afridi, Wazim Akram, and then the Australian side. Well, look at this Mark War, Adam Gilchrist, Ricky Ponting, Darren Lehman, Steve War, Bevan, Moody, Shane Warne, uh, Glenn McGrath. I mean, they were, the, they were the best, some of the best cricketers in the world at that time. It did feel like Test cricket in short form. Yeah, I mean, I, I was remembering the kind of early days of, of one-day internationals where sometimes they'd be played over 60 overs as the first World Cup was and sometimes 55 overs and so on. And often they were referred to as one-day tests before the yeah. uh, vocabulary settled into one-day internationals and ODIs. And yeah. you know, the, these matches did often feel like one-day tests in that the, the conditions balanced bat and ball. There weren't quite as many restrictions on field placings and there weren't, I don't think, power plays or certainly not the way they are and the, now. Yeah, I think there were. It's just mainly conditions, I think. Yeah, I think uh, so. I think this is the last tournament in which 300 was a kind of eye-widening score. Totally. I think it only I think it only happened twice, possibly, um, but certainly since then, obviously, it's a completely different game now. And uh, the maximum hadn't been invented then either. You can score <laughs> a six, but not a maximum <laughs> yet. That was later on. Yeah. So let's let's go to Australia and and their route through because it was a, a hair raising passage to the uh, to the final, despite that array of talent that's on mm. show. So they they see off. Scotland in the in the first match, Mark War in the runs as he was to be uh, later on, and then they they lose to New Zealand, uh, perhaps 
that's an indication of why Australia are so reluctant to play <laughs> New Zealand. <laughs> but that was to be important later on, because as you mentioned, uh, Rob, it meant that they were trying to ensure that uh, New Zealand were eliminated and the West Indies went... Uh, oh, sorry, that... Uh, yeah, West, yeah, they yeah, West right. Indies to go through rather than New Zealand. Yeah, yeah because they were... They, carried zero points through uh, from that New Zealand match because New Zealand were co-qualifiers for the Super Sixers. They they beat Bangladesh and then they, they beat West Indies, crawling to 111 for four in, in over 40 overs. Uh, that eliminates uh, Bangladesh. And then they start the Super Six with other teams having, for example, Pakistan have four points, South Africa have two points, New Zealand have two points, Zimbabwe carry through four points. And the only two teams that carried through zero points were Australia and India. Um, So they meet in the first match, and uh, Mark Waugh comes to the party as uh, Australia beat India. And um, then they beat Zimbabwe, which they needed to do. And then it's the eliminator, really, against South Africa. And this was a a nail-biting match in which um, the World Cup was dropped by Herschel Gibbs, or so they'll have us believe. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Like that, that, so when you hear the Australian team from, from that 99 World Cup talk about it, there's two interesting things. One is that... They were not a very happy team, uh, you know, at the start of that tournament. I mean, you know, who is happy when they're losing? And especially when you're a team that expects to to win all the time, as, you know, the Steve War Invincibles did. And they just didn't look, they hadn't looked together. Even, you know, it's really funny thing to say, but even like from their very first game against Scotland, obviously they beat Scotland, but they didn't beat them they didn't beat them in style. You know, they, they, uh, Steve Ward said their fielding was atrocious because um, they dropped three chances. Their bowling was like really meh. You know, then came that loss to New Zealand when, you know, they actually had New Zealand 49 for four. And then they let Roger Twos and Ke- Chris Cairns put on 148 in 28 overs. Shane Warne was getting taken apart by, by people, including Neil Johnson of Zimbabwe. You know, so, so Warne himself was not in a good, in, in good shape. I think he'd had a shoulder operation um, the year before and that had really affected him. And, um, you know, Steve Waugh had dropped him um, during their tour of West Indies. So those two weren't very happy. And basically it was just like a really kind of, is a really unhappy team. Ricky Ponting talks about this, um, this team dinner they had at Pizza Hut in Durham. Um, when wow. basically, <laughs> I mean, how, how cool That shows that? how bad it got. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Um, and apparently that one of the big things that changed the team turned the team around was Tom Moody coming into the team but partly because you know it it changed the the way uh, you know the way their their bowling set up and their attack worked but also because Tom Moody was the only person apparently who was good friends enough with war and who was outspoken enough to say do you know what I'm not going to put up with this drinking ban that you've put on us (laughs) Um, yeah. And apparently that was like a big, that was a big part of like the change of the mood it was like Tom Moody, like being able to say, you know, like, no, no, this curfew isn't working for me. This, the fact I can't have a glass of wine the night before that I go out to bat isn't, is, you know, is, is ridiculous. And they had this kind of, they're sitting in this pizza hut, imagine, over their stuffed crust. And then they have <laughs> this kind of, um, you know, they let it all out. They, they really share. They really like tell each other what they think of each other and they get it or they have this mood clearing meeting maybe they get themselves a couple of those you know those ice creams from the ice cream machine <laughs> and they put spring 
sprinkles just, on them. Not just a mood clearing meeting then in that case. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was apparently when it you know it really it really turned around and, and also, you know, backs to the wall, this is it, isn't it? This Australia team, you know, you've got a team led by Steve Waugh. You know, you put their backs to the wall and that is when they're gonna come at you hardest, really. And and that is definitely also what happened. You know, that, that was just totally exemplified by that Super Six match. They had to beat South Africa. They did it by two balls, and they did it because Steve Waugh scored, you know, an astonishing century, despite the fact that there were South African players goading him on the field, and despite the fact that he was, you know, he was actually he was actually caught by her. Yeah, I mean, it's he true. was actually caught. It's it's not that he was it's sort of not that he was dropped. It's that Gibbs mm. literally threw the ball away. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was at mid-wicket, he'd taken the ball, and he had this habit of immediately throwing the ball up in celebration. And as everyone knows, the laws say you've got to be in control of the ball uh, at the point that you do that. And Gibbs went to throw it up in the air, and it just dropped out of the bottom of his hand. And mm. interestingly, Shane Warne says, and I don't know whether anyone's ever clarified this, but Shane Warne says that he predicted that was going to happen. He, he Has did. anybody else read that? Yeah, the night before, he said to the team, yeah. The team meeting he said basically if anyone's caught by gibbs hang around because he's got a habit of doing that and they all laughed at him. they could barely have laughed more if he'd said he was going to go out with liz hurley one day but the <laughs> next day he was shouting i told you i told you and i, I find that fascinating I, mean, I know warren you know people have different opinions on him but it's just that's such a unique example of his cricket instinct and cricket brain i find it extraordinary that he actually noticed that and said it the night before the game and it came to pass. You know, I remember watching it at the time and thinking he was hard done by because I I knew the rule and I I still kind of think, well, what he intended to do was was kind of throw the ball up in the air and what he, he got wrong was throwing the ball up in the air. It wasn't the catch that came before it. It was the throw, mm. the action of throwing the ball in the air. Was um, the catch completed, yeah. I mean, well, it would be interesting yeah. with, D, with DRS these days and, and replays. Who knows? They yeah. might actually have said, you know what, he caught it and he dropped it throwing it up. So Yeah, that's what I that's out. what I thought at the time. And I, yeah. I kind of still think that now. But it's gone down in in folklore. And speaking of folklore, it's great to hear that the kind of mythos of Australian mateship can uh, survive even <laughs> a night in, in, in what was it, Pizza Hut or Pizza Express? Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut. It? I don't yeah. think Pizza yeah. Express was a big thing in nineteen oh, oh, it yeah. was in Soho, because I used to go there. <laughs> <laughs> That's another story. Um, Other pizza but, restaurants are available. Are, are available. But, I mean, looking at that scorecard from the do-or-die game uh, against South Africa, from the South African perspective, you've got through Mark Waugh, who was a man in form, you've got through Adam Gilchrist, who was Adam Gilchrist, and you've got through Damian Martin. They've got 48 on the board. They're three down. And you think, well, you know, we're right in this. But you've still mm. got Ricky Ponting at the crease, and Steve Waugh, with Michael Bevan and Tom Moody still in the hutch. Now, that is some resources that Australia have got there, and they needed to use all of them right the way deep into the final over of the match. And, you know, Steve Waugh at his most flinty-eyed with his 120 not out. Um, But, you know, those resources, even against a a fine South Africa side, it's a hell of a team, that Australian team. It is. I remember watching that game, and for most of the chase, they it felt like they were in huge trouble. They even with war at the crease, they you know the run rate it doesn't look that prohibitive now, the required rate, but at the time it was. But then after he was dropped, War kind of went into overdrive, 
kind of batter like someone else really he was slog sweeping quick bowlers he had there was an infant he had a terrible conversion rate in odi it was something like 135 50s and yeah the south african players were reminding him of him of it during his innings which wasn't a bright idea yeah <laughs> the shame for herschel gibbs was that he'd scored 100 in south africa's innings and no one remembers that well they remember <laughs> him dropping that well not holding on to a catch he'd caught but uh, yeah, so that, I mean, Australia, Australia, Steve Ward, you know, you just have to say those two, two names together, and you're always in with a chance. Michael Bevan was regarded as the best finisher in world cricket in those days. He was going in at what six or seven, was he? Uh, and then yeah, you had uh, Moody at seven. Well, that's a decent size, isn't it? I mean, I, I mean, I do feel sorry for Herschel Gibbs. He he was one of those players that. Uh, he had a joy in the way he played and he attacked everything he did. He came across occasionally as a bit gauche and a bit naive, but you wouldn't have begrudged him taking that catch and, and South Africa winning that match. Well, he was to get some kind of personal redemption in chasing down 400 and odd, wasn't he, uh, a few years sure. later, playing a, a big part in in that. Um, but let's let's move on while we, we've got South Africa and Australia. Let's move to the, the semi-final. Uh, one of the greatest matches, I think we can say greatest matches, never mind greatest one-day matches in cricket history. So, um, Emma, do you want to tell us a bit about that semi-final? I think the thing that you know has to be said first is that um, I think, that, and I, uh, Rob can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Rob Bob Wilmer said this before, before the semi-final, is this right that Bob Wilmer said before the semi-final, um, this is 1999, the yeah. choking thing is all played out. Yeah, he was really uh, angry. Yeah. He was he yeah. was presumably angry about the about the pre, you know talking about the previous game, and he basically you know so he makes this pronouncement and says you know yeah South Africa had a reputation as chokers before 1997, but you know this is this is not this is not right now. You know we've got an 80 percent win record, which I feel like is basically like the biggest jinx that was put on this game. So all a bit uh, kind of don't mention the war, isn't it, really? (laughs) Absolutely. You know, so South Africa are like, they. I mean, it's as everyone has said, this is a bit like a test match. So, you know, I I don't want to go into too much detail, but just, you know, it does ebb and flow. But basically, you know, South Africa are right in there from the start. Mark Waugh goes for a four-ball duck in the first over. Donald, Alan Donald takes two wickets in an over. He gets out um, Ricky Ponting, I think, who had had hit a couple of... um, uh, fantastic shots and then yeah and then he gets he gets Ponting and he gets Lehman in the 14th over and then Gilchrist follows a few overs later at which point Australia a 68 for four Steve Waugh survives this run out chance and then he and Bevan come together which I think is what is this the one that you were talking about Rob where yeah. you said that they put yeah. on ve- like six runs six and eight point four overs yeah <laughs> that takes I mean that, the, the nervelessness of that is it just I, I find it quite mind-blowing in a way it reminds me a little bit of Imran Khan in the 92 World Cup but he would take a long time to set the innings up and then Inzamam and Wazimakram would belt it everywhere but yeah I find it fascinating that they had the nerve to do that so so basically you know you know Pollock gets wore out and then and then Bevan's marshalling the tail right and he, and he so he gets them to 213 right and 213 is you know very much considered a 
below par score. But I think it's interesting that I think I can't remember if it was Bevan who said this after was that like sometimes you you essentially you know the best thing is to like uh, sort of lessen your expectations <laughs> essentially and like you can try for something too too high and and in this case you know just trying for a lower figure was what they needed to do so they so they get these 213 could i just stop uh, you there emma because i think that's a really interesting point you know i i sometimes feel like an even older man than i am when i speak to <laughs> to younger younger people about this because it's very much the way these days that you set out to make 300 and you know you if it goes well you're going to make more than that but the idea of kind of recalibrating the sights and and going down to aim for 220 210 because it's the kind of score that keeps you in the game even if you're second favorites that just never happens these days but it was much more commonplace then and this match is a kind of ideal example of how the sights were reset from Australia, who probably started off aiming for kind of 270, 280. But there's, you know, a very clear thought patterns that you can see. It helps with the captains at the crease, where they say, well, if we can get 200 and something, then we're, you know, we're in this game. We've got, we've got good bowlers. And I just wonder whether that could happen more often these days rather than you know the the fearless cricket which has brought success for for england but um you know maybe you know the, the pendulum is swinging back i, I know sorry my, my, my reading is completely different i'm afraid I, I think they i think australia were very lucky in that match they were they were struggling all the way through the the partnership between uh war and bevan was all they had and then the the, the i mean after that the partnership finished at seven for two hundred and seven. They were all out for two hundred and thirteen. Well, that that's not managing an innings. That's just getting bowled out by South Africa. I think what happened is that South Africa choked. Simple as that. I mean, Shane Warne bowled a fantastic ball to get Herschel Gibbs out at the start of their innings. Uh, I agree with you. The the idea of recalibrating an innings is uh, is no longer with us and was available then. But I think in this instance, it's just bad cricket. Yeah, Rob, the... and that's because I'm very old. <laughs> I I'm not. I don't totally agree with that. I, I think Bevan was very good at adjusting things. We all, usually we think of Bevan with the chases, you know, him knocking twos and running it. But actually, there are, I mean, for example, in this game, people forget that he was the highest scorer. I, I think he was very good at working out, you know, from what were they, 68 for four? And actually, Bevan doesn't get out until very late, so he's always hanging in and can always kind of adjust. I don't know. I, I personally think he was very good at, and he talks about it in his book, actually, I think, about they actually, he chatted with War about they kind of revised their uh, target during the partnership. Uh, I, I agree we see it less now. Funnily enough, I thought England in the World T20 semi-final, there was an element of that. I think they adjusted down slightly because they, the pitch was too paced when they lost to New Zealand. But um, but I just think Bevan was, again, he looks kind of completely outdated now. He barely hit fours, never mind sixes. But he was an extraordinary finisher who could judge a, a first innings and particularly a second as well as anyone in the world. I mean, I'll just read you the runs scored from the 20th over. So 20 overs, Australia 81 for four at the end of that 20th over. They scored three runs off that. It then goes five runs and then two runs. Maiden, maiden, two, one, maiden, maiden, one, and then nine as they start going again uh, as the overs go to 30. And that's that kind of bloodless 
uh, approach that you were talking about earlier, uh, Rob. Which yeah, but that's well, that's that's, that's fair enough. That that's not, but that's not recalibrating innings and thinking what's a good score on this pitch. That's just we've got to stay in, or we're going to be bowled out for ninety five. Yeah, I think yeah. Bevan's tactics, whether he's back first or second, just take it deep. Basically, a strange thing. Yeah. I think he realised more than anyone else possibly how much pressure there was on the bowler as well. Now, that's particularly in the case when you're batting second. But even first, I think his, his tactic was always just take it deep and, and then you can adjust and see what happens and punish people at the end. But you're right, 2-1-3 was still below par, I think. I think most people thought South Africa were favourites, especially when they raced to, I think, 48 for none in about 10 overs. Gibbs played some gorgeous strokes like he was on a mission to make up for the, the Sunday. And yeah, I think at that stage, it looked like South Africa were going to win at a canter. Yeah, maybe they had Richie's voice in his in their ears, you know, with his uh, dictum, which is very much of the twentieth century, you know, that you must use up all your uh, all your overs, and they they did take it into the fiftieth over. Uh, they got two hundred and thirteen, and then South Africa start their chase. And absolutely right, uh, Herschel Gibbs plays beautifully. But Emma, I'm going to throw to you there to to track us through to the. Uh, to the finish of uh, you know, one of the most famous innings ever played in one-day cricket, I would say. Yeah, suggest. well, I suppose the, the first thing that happened was Gibbs, having played nicely, gets out to this extraordinary delivery um, from Shane Warne. And Warne was kind of, you know, Warne was very much on like a kind of big mission. He actually, you know, the Australian players have said that he, he at the change of innings, he, he, he said to them, he made this sort of weird speech maybe in the huddle or something, you know, like, look, guys, come on, this might be the, this might be the end for some of us. So, so he's sort of making it about himself, which is really <laughs> cla- maybe classic Shane Warne, I don't know. But, um, you know, he, he was basically saying, hey, look, guys, I think I'm about to retire. And then uh, he gets his team back into this match by bowling this ball that is basically the Gatting ball of the century again, right? Mm. He bowls this, he, yeah. everyone knows the Gatting ball of the century. He bowls it again to Gibbs and he goes apps. I mean, Warren just goes nuts. Like, you know, you see it when you, when you rewatch it, he's just, he's just like screaming, like to nobody in particular, not to his teammates, just like, you know, he's yelling, come on. And he's really, really fired up. And uh, basically that was the start of this, you know, he, he, he bowls this incredible spell. He gets out Kirsten, Hansi Kronja, uh, in fact, he actually officially doesn't get out Hansi Kronja because Hansi gets caught at slip of his boot. So, um, but, you know, everybody's kind of caught up in the moment. So the umpire gives it. And this is all, you know, this is all helping, you know, Australia get back into it. That The run rate is climbing. And then eventually, you know, yeah, we end up with this situation where Lance Klusner is in and it's, what, 183 for seven, I think, when he comes in. And it's just, it's it's basically, you know, it's totally going down to the wire. It's getting really, really close. Like, it's very difficult to call. Who's, who's is this game? Everybody's biting their fingernails. And one of the issues there is that basically Klusner isn't, isn't getting strike enough. You know, he's he's the person who's going to get, he's going to get South Africa there if anybody does, but he's not, he's not actually on strike. So eventually Steve Elworthy, who was batting with him at the time, gets him uh, onto strike and then he gets out. And what is the kind of, what's the kind of key score here that probably, possibly maybe 198 for nine, which is the point where Paul Rifle drops Klusner on the boundary, right? Klusner hits at the, at the boundary, uh, Rifle tips it 
over his head for six. So now you've got um, nine needed off the last over and you've got Alan Donald at this stage in with, with Klusner and you've got Klusner on strike. So like everything, you know, it's all on him. It's all, it's all on this guy. And he's been, he's been doing it. He's been getting them there. He's been biffing everything that needs to be biffed. He scores two fours off the first two deliveries, right, of the of the final over. So now the scores are level. I mean, it is Africa's game. I mean, it's just like, it's the most extraordinary thing that happens next. I mean, I'm, I'm going to pause for a second because I'm sure that other people <laughs> have thoughts on this and I've just said a lot. But um, yeah, it's like literally the most extraordinary moment, I think, that many of us have seen until maybe the 2019 uh, World Cup final. Well, let's let's leave that last ball sort of on its way down towards the the batsman um, before we bring in uh, Rob and uh, Peter. But I, I love the description that Crickinfo gives to uh, that rerun of the ball of the century that got Herschel Gibbs because it says Gibbs doesn't leave, refuses to believe he was bowled. <laughs> <laughs> Just Which like is Gatting exactly what Gatting well, did. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. that's. That's yeah. right. It's just boldly stated. And for that not to be the uh, the highlight uh, delivery of the innings just goes to show what's coming next. But uh, but Rob, I mean, I, I remember watching this and thinking that this was done, but you always had Klusner there. And Klusner by this stage had reached such mythic status that what what seemed like it was going to be just easy for Australia to, to close this one out because he was there, as was to prove the case. Uh, South Africa still had a chance. Yeah, normally it takes years to build up an aura, but Klusner kind of did it over a three-week period. He, he was that formidable. Yeah, as Emma said, he, those two fours of Fleming were extraordinary. That, that One of them is when the commentator shouts, what kind of shot is that? And yeah. I think Fleming then switched. So they had four balls to get one run. Klusner knew that a tie would put them out, but not everyone did. Some of the Australian players didn't know. Uh, what a tie meant. Um, they knew what one more run would mean that they'd lost. So it's often forgotten there was almost a run out of the third ball. Klusner kind of slugged it to, I think it was mid on. Donald backed up a mile and would have been out had Lehman's throw hit. So they kind of had their warning. They had a phrase, Bob Warman had a phrase for the players, which he got from Surya McGeekin, the rugby coach, which was, um, what was it? Brains in the fridge, bodies in the oven, which is what they wanted to be their kind of ethos. And the problem is Donald was so startled by backing up too far that when the next ball happened, basically... His brain was in the oven and his body was in the fridge. He Kluzner put it down the ground. And Donald just didn't move. Kluzner kept running. And it's just, I mean, I think it's still the, the image. We can all picture it now, I'm sure, of all the Australians going ballistic. Kluzner barely looks over his shoulder. He just keeps going. And Donald said he just couldn't move, basically. He was transfixed. Mm. I, I find it fascinating. A lot of the Aussies didn't know they'd won. They just, they were roaring because they hadn't lost. Warn you and warn you and then almost two three seconds of body language they all kind of collectively realized that they, that, that was enough and after the game there's so much you could say about this game steve war reached peak steve war when he said i almost feel sorry for south africa <laughs> just, just, it's just a perfect steve war. a couple of things on the technicalities the south africa lost to zimbabwe in the, the early stage which was basically an afterthought they were already through that ultimately cost them here because it meant they didn't take points through to the super six had they done so, had they beaten Zimbabwe, they would have finished above Australia in the Super 6 and therefore a tie would have put them through. So a defeat 17 days earlier that no one really gave a second thought to ultimately put them out of the World Cup. Um, mm. I think it's the cruelest bit of cricket I've ever seen. I think it's horrible that a, such an admirable bloke, like a true champion like Alan Donald, is probably best known for an innings of naught balls. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I did something on it two years ago, a long read, so I managed to get extended highlights 
And it's genuinely spine tingling watching it. You feel nervous. You know what's going to happen, but you still feel nervous. That's a really good sign of sport that's not just elite. It's just like kind of another level entirely. I think you can make a case it's the greatest cricket game ever. Certainly the greatest white ball game. The 2019 final, probably a better finish, but wasn't a great game. This was just epic in pretty much every way. Peter, one and lost and one and lost by both teams. I mean, the, the you mm. know, one to win off four balls, Kluzer and Donald. I mean, Steve Waugh uh, did what captain should do and he basically surrounded them, didn't he? I mean, he, the ring of fielders, uh, you wouldn't want to put, have anyone out. They only, only want one to win. But when you do that, you know that a top edge or just a slog over the top is, is going to win it. Do you know one so thing he, really, sorry, just very quickly, between well, the third and fourth ball, nobody stops. Mm. Nobody After that scare when they could have won, Clues and Donald yeah. don't stop. War doesn't go for a chat with the bowler. It's like no. they couldn't bear it. They just had to get it over with one way or another. Oh, I agree. I it agree. Was yeah. So intense, incredibly yeah. intense. Well, and Alan Donald, one of the nicest blokes you'll ever meet. He's he's a calm, reasonable chap, except with a ball in his hand, <laughs> uh, and his brain departed for that period of time and you know dropping the bat having to stop and pick mm. it up it was you couldn't make it up my question is would he have made that run i mean i don't i, I, I looking back i i wonder you know how how quick if he if he'd gone off immediately yes he probably would have done but yeah. but only if he'd gone off absolutely immediately i mean but maybe it was a bad rob, run. Rob, rob's point is right they why didn't they talk to each other I yeah. think they were just run. so terrified and so so freaked out by the intensity of the moment that they they just uh, they one lost their small, they lost one their heads. small thing and me all that there's this incredibly nonchalant sidearm flick from Mark Ward to the bowler who Fleming <laughs> yeah. who then rolls it down to Gilchrist <laughs> it's just a typical Mark Ward it's so so insouciant <laughs> in the circumstances I wonder if you played that those last four balls again and you got the same players out there what would be the result outcome I think I reckon it would be the same you know I think yeah I think, I think it's if, too if, much. If, it, it was a moment in time. That, yeah, it was too. It was too much for everyone, particularly South Africa. And of course, because everyone called them chokers. Or oh, we can't possibly choke from here, can we? Want to win off four balls? Oh yes, we can. But and and you know, you, you feel sorry for them, but got to win that game, boys. If you're going to win the World Cup, simple as that. Well, I I remember watching it and sort of panicking in case Damien Fleming bowled a no ball or couldn't get his arm over because I mean the tightness in him bowling especially having been hit for two fours I mean he's a, a bit of a forgotten player in in that incident but you know he he held his nerve and he, he you know you'd expect Mark War simply to, with the insouciance that defined both his fielding and his batting to do that but Fleming had a lot to do in that uh, delivery and the run out and, and, and did it well. But, you know, the overarching memory is is Alan Donald almost cutting a, a kind of tragic figure in no man's land mm. there and just looking completely lost um, well, an experienced pro. The point that you were making about could he have made that run? Well, you've got to try. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's the point of not being out at that point, of not being run out? If You know, you've just got to go. But there was so much going on that he, his brain just melted, I think. So just run, and Don't wait, hesitate, see if there's a run, just go. And I'm trying to remember watching on television whether they were absolutely certain about who was going to qualify themselves because it not wasn't just the players, I don't think, who were, were not absolutely no, on top of what needs to happen. Commentators didn't know until... Commentators yeah. were scrambling with about two overs to go, and then eventually they... Yeah, again, it, come, it was just a different time. Nobody really looked at the small print at all, um, whereas now, obviously, we, we do. 
Yeah, I mean, as the, as as everyone did in the 2019 World Cup final, everyone knew exactly <laughs> what was happening there. Precisely. <laughs> I tell you what, it's a, it, it is a, a funny old game. But let's ha- let's have a, a a look at the other semi final, which which pales a bit in, in comparison. But um, it's Pakistan, New Zealand, and it's a strong Pakistan team, and they just cruise home, don't they? They do. This yeah. is when New Zealand were kind of perennial semi finalists. Yeah, two four one for seven. Shoe Bolt, as we were saying, had some incredible Yorkers, particularly to Stephen Fleming. And then Pakistan cruise home. Said Anwar got a ton and they won by nine wickets. So it looked like the kind of slate had worked clean after those iffy Super 6 performances. And it set up what seemed like an incredibly exciting final. Yeah, and I, I remember the morning of that final in, in Tooting because it wasn't so easy to get the cricket shirts, but you could still get, you know, obviously the football shirts. And there were there were quite a few kids in and around uh, Tooting who were wearing England football shirts with Pakistan caps on with the uh, star on the on the cap there and it was a a kind of nice uh, thumb in the nose of the uh, tebit test to see that there was a, a lot going on but it was it was big in in tooting this was pakistan uh, off to a world cup final in england and uh, those who trace their heritage to pakistan really were going in with with very high hopes indeed not without reason but it turned into the dampest of squibs didn't it uh, it did yeah uh, Pakistan won the toss batted which they shouldn't have done it was quite a sweaty pitch it'd been under covers apparently most of the team wanted to bowl but whereas in the captain was insistent um, just never got going really bowled out for one three two. Warren who by then was at his absolute best took four more wickets to go with four in the semis Australia won with 29.5 overs to spare which is yeah it was just one of the most disappointing finals probably ever in an ICC tournament yeah so there was only like there was was less than five hours of cricket wasn't there yeah it was over by about 4.30 it was over by 4.30 it started half an hour late it was it was in front of quite a disinterested neutral crowd so um, you know obviously uh, it could very much have been full of Pakistan supporters the way that we know uh, you know the way that we saw it at the last World Cup but it could have been an amazing atmosphere at Lords but it wasn't because of the way they'd sold the tickets (laughs) And uh, as a result, I think a a lot of the most kind of actually engaged Pakistan fans were the ones who were trying to watch from outside the ground and who were, you know, literally climbing scaffolding to peek over and and they got chased off. So, you know, not in in terms of like as a, hey, let's all celebrate cricket and let's let's be inclusive and let's let's show, you know, let's let's celebrate our cricket community. It really did the opposite of what the carnival of cricket was supposed to do, I think. Yeah. Annika Rice sent her apologies. She was fishing. (laughs) 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 There was just a feeling that, oh, could something happen because, you know, the the Pakistan attack was was uh, such an attack. And, you know, Gilchrist comes in and, you know, he makes 54, but he's out in the 11th over for that 54 and the game's done the 75 for one and you know there wasn't even that kind of jeopardy that you know you might have got with a couple of quick wickets and you know people scrabbling around for pads and gloves and everything else it was just a an, an absolute cruise i mean the the only thing i can say that was good about the the final is that it kind of lends even more luster to the semi-final that we've talked sure. about because that that grows in the memory because it was not overshadowed by the uh, by the final and you know it would be trite to say so and you know unfair to an outstanding Pakistan team who had played very well in many of their matches up until that point but it means that Australia won 
the World Cup largely on the back of two pulsating victories against South Africa. Was it was that after this game that they were burning effigies of Wazim Akram? Back <laughs> yeah. In the hall? yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there was a strange post. Actually, the coach said the performance was disgraceful, but Wazim almost gave a victory speech, almost just talking about how proud he was mm. of them in the tournament, and it didn't matter that it had lost. And there were a few whispers about this game as well. I mean, I don't know. I think they just they just froze on the day and they made a bad decision at the toss. And yeah. Australia by yeah. then were not quite irresistible, but not far from it. Well, I think that was the the, the main controversy. But why would Pakistan bat? having won mm. the toss. That didn't make any sense at all. They'd beaten Australia by batting first earlier in the tournament. That's the only thing I could think. But you're right, this was different. It was 10.45. It'd been under the... Yeah. I know it was even later because it was under the covers. That's right. It just screamed bowl first. I mean, you would think Wazza would know that from his... Um, that was trophy final experience as well. But yeah. there you go. Well, he said afterwards they could have defended 180. Well, the mindset <laughs> is weird to me there, honestly. Yeah. Get them in, get them out. Yeah, especially with the attack Pakistan had. Absolutely. Well, it was to be 20 years before the World Cup came back to England uh, in 2019. Looking back on it, it's a flawed tournament, but um, <laughs> it gave us some great cricket. Do we, do we look back with, with fondness, with kindness? Do we look back as a... Uh, it was 1999, that was a, a kind of uh, pivotal year for English cricket. Was it a pivotal year uh, for World Cup cricket? Um, how do we how do we remember the tournament? Is what I'm I'm looking for, uh, Peter. Waking up screaming in the middle of the night, uh, <laughs> trying to work trying to work out how it worked. That terrible song and video, the appalling opening ceremony, England being bashed up. Some great sparky moments. That 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 match we've said about one of the best one day matches of all time. But it, it wasn't one of those things that you would say. In my long and, and undistinguished career as a cricket writer, it wasn't one of the highlights by any stretch of the imagination. Emma? Yeah, I suppose the feeling I attach to it is very much one of disappointment. Um, huge disappointment. And then I think what's happened is it's it's kind of been... It's been cemented, hasn't it, into the England narrative as, you know, literally the nadir of English cricket. I think that's half of the issue um, why it's been so hard to reappraise it is because, you know, it's this fixed point in the history of English cricket where it's we were literally the worst team in the world. We, mm. uh, you know, we went out of our own tournament before the groups, you know, before the, 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 the group stages were over. And then we hit hit the bottom of the of the test match league. Therefore, it's quite difficult not to look back on it and feel a sense of meh <laughs> about it all. Um, yeah. But actually, when you know when you look at it from a pure cricketing point of view, and as we were saying, that the quality of the players uh, in those teams, not to mention the fact that there is you know it had this one incredible jewel of like literally you know greatest world cup match of all time that actually it, it it's it's worth a lot more really in our estimation and if we weren't england fans maybe we would feel like that before i come to rob for the last word um one of the things i found disappointing about it is that the narrative was so hard to disentangle we've we've talked a lot about the convoluted uh, formula that didn't help build a narrative and starting on the 14th of may well manchester united didn't play their champions league final until the 26th of may so you know it, it felt like it felt like it was a rare case of the cricket season impinging on the football season rather than the other way around and then england going out like that i i i just couldn't get a grip on the 
tournament as a as a fan uh there were certainly great players and there were great matches but actually seeing it as a a tournament with a kind of beginning middle and end it was really hard to do and uh and it's interesting that I, i don't think they've gone to that kind of same structure of super sixes but maybe there is no ideal format to be able to present jeopardy and clarity at the same time in a cricket world cup but i'll give the last word to you rob well, I was just going to say that the Gregorian calendar isn't always much used to historians. You know, people say the 60s started in 63 and so on. I'm sure you can tell us about that, Gary. But this <laughs> has a genuine end of the century feel, both for the England team. It was the kind of last time there were a collection of county players. But also for one-day cricket, this was the last hurrah of old-fashioned one-day cricket. Ever since then, it's kind of been fours and sixes. So I think I remember it for that. But most of all, just for 17th of June, 99, the best white ball game and the cruelest white ball game I've ever seen. And I genuinely do get chills still watching it. I just think that defines the tournament and elevates it. Just that game alone, never mind all the other excellence, I think elevates it to one of the better World Cups. It's hard to quantify, but I would put it pretty high because that game was just so good. I still can't get my head around how many kind of plots uh, and layers there were to it. So that'll always be the abiding memory, I think. And, And cruel is a perfect adjective for that match. Well, I've got to be cruel to be kind now because our time is up. So it's uh, time for me to say uh, thank you very much to Peter Hayter. Thank you, Peter. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to Emma John. Thank you, Emma. Thanks. And thanks to Rob Smythe. Thank you. We'll be back soon with another episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. Thank you for listening.